0: Section 13 of The Seven Follies of Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seven Follies of Science by John Finn. Section 13 the fourth dimension and the possibility of a new sense and new sense organ this subject has now found its way not only into semi-scientific works but into our general literature and magazines even our novel writers have used suggestions from this hypothesis as part of the machinery of their plots so that it properly finds a place amongst the subjects discussed in this volume Various attempts have been made to explain what is meant by the fourth dimension, but it would seem that thus far the explanations which have been offered are, to most minds, vague and incomprehensible. This latter condition arising from the fact that the ordinary mind is utterly unable to conceive of any such thing as a dimension which cannot be defined in terms of the three with which we are already familiar. And I confess at the start that I labor under the superlative difficulty of not being able to form any conception of a fourth dimension, and for this incapacity my only consolation is that in this respect I am not alone. I have conversed upon the subject with many able mathematicians and physicists, and in every case I found that they were in the same predicament as myself and where i have met men who profess to think it easy to form a conception of a fourth dimension i have found their ideas not only in regard to the new hypothesis but to its correlations with generally accepted physical facts to be nebulous and inaccurate it does not follow however that because myself and some others cannot form such a clear conception of a fourth dimension as we can of a third that therefore the theory is erroneous and the alleged conditions non-existent. Some minds of great power and acuteness have been incapable of mastering certain branches of science. Thus Diderot, who was associated with D'Alembert, the famous mathematician in the production of L'Encyclopédie, and who was not only a man of acknowledged ability, but who at one time taught mathematics and wrote upon several mathematical subjects seems to have been unable to master the elements of algebra the following anecdote regarding his deficiency in this respect is given by tibo and endorsed by professor de morgan at the invitation of the empress catherine the second diderot paid a visit to the russian court he was a brilliant conversationalist and being quite free with his opinions he gave the younger members of the court circle a good deal of lively atheism the empress herself was very much amused but some of her counsellors suggested that it might be desirable to check these expositions of strange doctrines as catherine did not like to put a direct muzzle on her guest's tongue the following plot was contrived diderot was informed that a learned mathematician was in possession of an algebraical demonstration of the existence of god and would give it to him before all the court if he desired to hear it diderot gladly consented and although the name of the mathematician is not given it is well known to have been euler he advanced toward diderot and said in french gravely and in a tone of perfect conviction Monsieur, the sum of a plus b to the nth, all over n, is equal to x. Therefore, God exists. Reply. Diderot, to whom algebra was Hebrew, was embarrassed and disconcerted, while peals of laughter rose on all sides. He asked permission to return to France at once, which was granted. Even such a mind as that of Buckle, who was generally acknowledged to be a keen sighted thinker, could not form any idea of a geometrical line, that is, of a line without breadth or thickness, a conception which has been grasped clearly and accurately by thousands of schoolboys. He therefore asserts positively that there are no lines without breadth, and comes to the following extraordinary conclusions since however the breadth of the faintest line is so slight as to be incapable of measurement except by an instrument under the microscope it follows that the assumption that there can be lines without breadth is so nearly true that our senses when unassisted by art cannot detect the error formerly and until the invention of the micrometer in the seventeenth century it was impossible to detect it at all hence the conclusions of the geometrician approximate so closely to truth that we are justified in accepting them as true the flaw is too minute to be perceived but that there is a flaw appears to me certain it appears certain that whenever something is kept back in the premises Something must be wanting in the conclusion. In all such cases, the field of inquiry has not been entirely covered, and part of the preliminary facts being suppressed, it must, I think, be admitted that complete truth be unattainable, and that no problem in geometry has been exhaustively solved. End quote. From History of Civilization in England american edition volume two page three hundred and forty two the fallacy which underlies mr buckle's contention is thus clearly exposed by the author of the natural history of hell if it be conceded that lines have breadth then all we have to do is to assign some definite breadth to each line say the one thousandth of an inch and allow for it but the lines of the geometer have no breadth all the micrometers of which mr buckle speaks depend either directly or indirectly upon lines for their graduations and the positions of these lines are indicated by rulings or scratches now in even the finest of these rulings as for example those of nobert or fasolt where the ruling or scratching together with its accompanying space amounts to no more than the one hundredth and fifty thousandth part of an inch, the scratch has a perceptible breadth. But this broad scratch is not the line recognized by the microscopist, to say nothing of the geometer. The true line is a line which lies in the very center of this scratch, and it is certain that this central line has absolutely no breadth at all. End quote. From The Natural History of Hell by John Philipson, page 37. It must be very evident that if Mr. Buckle's contention that geometrical lines have breadth were true, then some of the fundamental axioms of geometry must be false. It could no longer be true that quote, the whole is equal to all its parts taken together. End quote or if we divide a square or a circle into two parts by means of a line which has breadth the two parts cannot be equal to the whole as it formerly was as a matter of fact mr buckle's lines are saw cuts not geometrical lines geometrical points lines and surfaces have no material existence and can have none an ideal conception and a material existence are two very different things a very interesting book flatland by e a abbott london eighteen eighty four has been written on the movements and feelings of the inhabitants of a world of two dimensions nevertheless if we know anything at all we know that such a world could not have any actual existence and when we attempt to form any mental conception of it and its inhabitants we are compelled to adopt to a certain extent the idea of the third dimension but at the same time we must remember that since the ordinary mechanic and the schoolboy who has studied geometry find no difficulty in conceiving of points without magnitude lines without breadth and surfaces without thickness conceptions which seem to have been impossible to buckle a man of acknowledged ability it may be possible that minds constituted slightly differently from that of myself and some others might perhaps be able to form a conception of a fourth dimension leaving out of consideration the speculations of those who have woven this idea into romances and daydreams we find that the hypothesis of a fourth dimension has been presented by two very different classes of thinkers, and the discussion has been carried on from two very different standpoints. The first suggestion of this hypothesis seems to have come from Kant and Gauss, and to have had a purely metaphysical origin, for although attempts have been made to trace the idea back to the famous phantoms of Plato, it is evident that the ideas then advanced had nothing in common with the modern theory of the existence of a fourth dimension the first hint seems to have been a purely mathematical one and did not attract any very general attention it was however seized upon by a certain branch of the transcendentalists closely allied to the spiritualists and was exploited by them as a possible explanation Of some curious and mysterious phenomena and feats exhibited by certain Indian and European devotees. This may have been done merely for the purpose of mystifying and confounding their adversaries by bringing forward a striking illustration of Hamlet's famous dictum, There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy a very fair statement of this view is thus given by edward carpenter in from adam's peak to elephanta page 160 there is another idea which modern science has been familiarizing us with and which is bringing us towards the same conception that namely of the fourth dimension The supposition that the actual world has four space dimensions instead of three makes many things conceivable which otherwise would be incredible. It makes it conceivable that apparently separate objects, e.g. distinct people, are really physically united. That things apparently sundered by enormous distances of space are really quite together that a person or other object might pass in and out of a closed room without disturbance of walls doors or windows etc and if this fourth dimension were to become a factor of our consciousness it is obvious that we should have means of knowledge which to the ordinary sense would appear simply miraculous there is much apparently to suggest that the consciousness attained to By the Indian jnanis in their degree, and by hypnotic subjects in theirs, is of this fourth dimensional order. As a solid is related to its own surface, so, it would appear, is the cosmic consciousness related to the ordinary consciousness. The phases of the personal consciousness are but different facets of the other consciousness, and experiences which seem remote from each other in the individual are perhaps all equally near in the universal. Space itself, as we know it, may be practically annihilated in the consciousness of a larger space, of which it is but the superficies. And a person living in London may not unlikely find that he has a backdoor opening quite simply and unceremoniously out in Bombay. End quote. On the other hand, the mathematicians, looking at it as a purely speculative idea, have endeavored to arrive at definite conclusions in regard to what would be the condition of things, if the universe really exists in a fourth, or even in some higher dimension. Professor W. W. R. Ball tells us that, The conception of a world of more than three dimensions is facilitated by the fact that there is no difficulty in imagining a world confined to only two dimensions, which we may take for simplicity to be plane, though equally well it might be a spherical or other surface. We may picture the inhabitants of Flatland as moving either on the surface of a plane or between two parallel and adjacent planes. They could move in any direction along the plane, but they could not move perpendicularly to it, and would have no consciousness that such a motion was possible. We may suppose them to have no thickness, in which case they would be mere geometrical abstractions, or we may think of them as having a small but uniform thickness, in which case they would be realities, end quote. And, quote if an inhabitant of Flatland was able to move in three dimensions, he would be credited with supernatural powers by those who were unable so to move. For he could appear or disappear at will, could, so far as they could tell, create matter or destroy it, and would be free from so many constraints to which the other inhabitants were subject, that his actions would be inexplicable to them. End quote. End quote our conscious life is in three dimensions and naturally the idea occurs whether there may not be a fourth dimension no inhabitant of flatland could realize what life in three dimensions would mean though if he evolved an analytical geometry applicable to the world in which he lived he might be able to extend it so as to obtain results true of that world in three dimensions which would be to him unknown and inconceivable similarly we cannot realize what life in four dimensions is like though we can use analytical geometry to obtain results true of that world or even of worlds of higher dimensions moreover the analogy of our position to the inhabitants of flatland enables us to form some idea of how inhabitants of space of four dimensions would regard us End quote. and quote, if a finite solid was passed slowly through flatland the inhabitants would be conscious only of that part of it which was in their plane thus they would see the shape of the object gradually change and ultimately vanish in the same way if a body of four dimensions was passed through our space we should be conscious of it only as a solid body namely the section of the body by our space whose form and appearance gradually changed, and perhaps ultimately vanished. It has been suggested that the birth, growth, life, and death of animals may be explained thus as the passage of finite four-dimensional bodies through our three-dimensional space." Attempts have been made to construct drawings and models showing a four-dimensional body, The success of such attempts has not been very encouraging. Investigators of this class look upon the actuality of a fourth dimension as an unsolved question, but they hold that, provided we could see our way clear to adopt it, it would open up wondrous possibilities in the way of explaining abstruse and hitherto inexplicable physical conditions and phenomena. There is, obviously, no limit to such speculations, provided we assume the existence of such conditions as are needed for our purpose. Too often, however, those who indulge in such daydreams begin by assuming the impossible, and end by imagining the absurd. We have so little positive knowledge in regard to the ultimate constitution of matter, and even in regard to the actual character of the objects around us which are revealed to us through our senses, that the field in which our imagination may revel is boundless. Perhaps some day the humanity of the present will merge itself into a new race, endowed with new senses, whose revelations are to us, for the present, at least utterly inconceivable. The possibility of such a development may be rendered more clear if we imagine the existence of a race devoid of the sense of hearing, and without the organs necessary to that sense they certainly could form no idea of sound far less could they enjoy music or oratory such as afford us so much delight and if one or more of our race should visit these people how very strange to them would appear those curious appendages called ears which project from the sides of our heads and how inexplicable to them would be the movements and expressions of intelligence which we show when we talk or sing. It is certain that no development of the physical or mathematical sciences could give them any idea whatever of the sensations which sound, in its various modifications, imparts to us, and neither can any progress in that direction enable us to acquire any idea of the revelations which a new sense might open up to us nevertheless it seems to me that the development of new senses and new sense-organs is not only more likely to be possible but that it is actually more probable than any revelation in regard to a fourth dimension End of section 13.